Good morning, church. Are you warm? Warmer in here. Yeah, welcome. You're the hearty souls. Getting out and moving around this morning, uh, build your endurance. Become a stronger human being for it. So congratulations. That's great. Thank you for your generosity as the offering's being collected. Just a reminder, when you pass that from uh, your right to the left, and when it gets to the end of the aisle, if it's not full, then pass it back across and let give folks another shot at it. It's encouraging to them. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Union Chapel. By the way, financial peace is starting right now over in the chapel. So if you were planning to go to financial peace today, you're in the wrong room. So you, it's okay. Get up and go. And you'll still catch most of it if, if that's your intention. Uh, as you know, we uh, are promoting financial peace. We, we love Dave Ramsey. He's state-of-the-art. He's best practice these days. More people listen to his podcast than just about anyone in the world. It's like the third most listened to podcast on the planet right now. Millions and millions of people listen to him on radio and podcast every day. Um, and so he, he's got a clue. And it's transforming lives, so I hope that uh, you'll take advantage of that. Just a reminder, we do have sponsorships. If the $109 entry fee to Financial Peace University is a little out of reach for you, we have others who will pay that tuition for you. So just uh, get in touch with Pastor Glenn Griner, and he will accommodate that for you. So want want to reduce all the barriers for you. Today we want to continue this series talking about money and resources and stewardship and being a generous person. A generous person isn't just merely a person who is generous with their material possessions, but they're generous with their spirit, generous with their words, generous with their emotions, generous in their relationships. And what we know is that people who are generous and giving and, and joyful in it tend to be the most successful people, the most happy people, the most prosperous people. Uh, the most uh, enriched relationship uh, people. And so we know that this matters. It's a big deal. It's why the Bible has so much to say about the subject. Today we want to uh, look at a, a section of Scripture that comes from the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a young Christian leader called Timothy. So it's in the letter of 1 Timothy, chapter 6 in the New Testament. And he is giving Timothy some perspective on different categories of folks who are wrestling with the subject of money. And Paul has a lot to say about this, and this may not be a proper sermon for you today, but it, it, uh, it's an opportunity to teach about these three categories. The three categories are people who are not rich, their attitudes about giving and being a generous person, a person who wants only to be rich, and a person who is rich. So these three categories, and I just want to teach a little bit from this text that we're going to read in just a moment, and, and hopefully it'll add value to your perspective and your practice of stewardship. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read for us verses 6 to 10, 17 to 19. We'll project the words on the screen, of course, and our custom is to stand to honor God's word, so as you're able, thank you for doing that. So here's the Apostle Paul talking to this young leader, Timothy, and he reminds him, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many... Uh, 
I just got lost. I'm sorry. Get rich. Fall into a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. My staff's recommending a larger print Bible. I don't know why. For the, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now over to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, may God inspire and instruct us through his word today. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Now, again, these three perspectives on this area of generosity and stewardship and money management. Uh, the first category is this. It's on your outline, and that is the perspective of those who are not rich. The Apostle Paul was concerned about folks who lived on the margins, didn't qu quite have enough every month, and, and he wondered about their and was concerned about them. So verse 6, where we started our text this morning, says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, you're, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll know that I referenced this verse because this verse has always been a bit troubling to me. And I made a confession. I'll make it again this morning. Contentment has not been something easy for me in my life. Um, all of us have vices of one sort or another, and discontentment is one of my vices. Uh, it's, it's just, you name the category, and it's never quite enough. And so contentment is something that's been hard for me to wrestle with. And so this, I'm not done with this verse. This verse is not done with me, and so I'm, I'm, I'm foisting it on you today. God's not done with me with this verse, so you, you have to suffer along with me. That's the way this works. So it says godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, godliness is a means of great gain when it is accompanied by contentment. Yeah, so this is for folks who struggle with contentment. Put it in the category of material wealth, for example. Uh, Paul is concerned about folks whose career didn't quite get to the level that they had dreamed about or opportunities didn't open for them. And so as they journeyed through life, you know, it just the, the breakthrough didn't come for them or uh, the investments they made, their mutual funds didn't perform at the level they were hoping and so these, these are folks who, who have been closer to the margins financially. You know, the, the, the income is there, and at the end of the month, you know, there's just not, very little left. And so you live on the margins for a long period of time in your life. Paul was concerned about people like that who are not rich. So this, this section is for those who struggle with that lack of contentment. And he was concerned, but he gives us this beautiful formula that changes our perspective. And the formula again is this, godliness plus contentment is great gain. Now let's define terms. What does it mean to be a godly person? Well, it means you have an authentic walk with God. You know Jesus Christ. You have a passion for holy living. You take God very seriously in your life. You submit to his will and plan for your life the best you understand it. God becomes then your primary passion when all is said and done, when you boil it down to the, to, the, to the basics, the essence of who you are and what you believe. You see God at the center of that essence. 
uh, you refer to him as your primary. Psalm 63, the psalmist here actually gives for us uh, uh, a revelation of what a, uh, the passions of a godly person is using phrases like earnestly, I seek you, your love is better than life. I will glorify, I will praise, I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied. My soul clings to you. I will rejoice in God. So you begin to get a feel for what a godly person is. An authentic, passionate, sincere walk with God. Uh, the default setting in your life is I defer to what God wants me to do. So that's a godly person. Now, let's consider what contentment might mean. Uh, maybe we could describe it as an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace regardless of the outward circumstances. Another way to say it, satisfaction on the inside no matter the circumstances on the outside. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, not that we are competent or complete in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God. That's a person who's describing contentment found in God and our relationship with him. So if we have both godliness and contentment, the scripture makes this wonderful promise that we will be the beneficiaries of a great gain. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. Now, for most people, one of the other of these virtues are missing or they're not complete. I've confessed to you that my contentment quotient is low, and so I'm incomplete in this area. So either there's no passion for God in a certain life, or there's no decision to be content. Now, hear the phrase, decision to be content. I've confessed to you my challenge with this subject in my own life, and so here's what I've learned because I have to grow in this. I have to do better at this. I have to accommodate the contentment in my life if I'm going to be on the plus side, if I'm going to find a fulfilled life. And so I use the phrase, failing to make the decision to be content. And the reason I use that phrase is because apparently it's a choice. Contentment is a choice. You can choose to be content. The Apostle Paul uh, made a testimony in one of the other letters that he wrote to the New Testament church. And he said, look, he said, I've been through a lot. He said, I've been through circumstances in my life when I was on, on the top. Uh, everything was going great. Uh, my career was percolating. Uh, my health was good. Everything, everything was on top. And he said, and I have been in situations, circumstances in my life where, wow, he said, I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. I didn't feel well physically. Uh, people hated me. I was oppressed and persecuted. He said, I've been on the top of the mountain. He said, I haven't been on, in the bottom of the valley. And then he summarized this way. He said, but, but in all things, I've learned to be content. Isn't that a fascinating comment? Isn't that a fascinating summary? No matter the circumstances in my life, high or low, good or bad, I have learned in all of these things to be content. Well, that helps us, doesn't it? That, that models for us what's possible in this area of contentment because apparently I can choose to place my trust and my confidence and my hope in God to the level that the circumstances do not cause me to lose my peace. I can choose to be content. I can choose to have peace based on my trust in God. That's encouraging to know, isn't it? And so, and so when one or both of these things are missing, contentment or godliness, You'll be poor no matter what your bank account says. And all the money of the world won't fix what's wrong if you're missing either godliness or contentment. 
So the formula, again, for those of us maybe who live on the margins, you're not, we're not rich. This is godliness plus contentment is great gain. That's where life is found. That's where meaning is found. That's where fulfillment is found. Yeah. One savings and loan billboard read like this. This is their marketing thing on the billboard. It said, we lend happiness in 18 locations. Really? We lend happiness. Well, we live in a culture whose predominant worldview is materialism. In the Western cultures, in America for sure, materialism dominates the global perspective. Now, that's, that's changing a bit. It's eroding some with younger generations as they emerge. But generally speaking, we are all affected by this. We're all influenced by the culture we live in. And so a materialistic worldview is something that gets all of us at some point or another. But let me remind you, money can buy a medical treatment, but it can't buy you health. Money can buy you a house, but it won't provide a home. Money can buy you companionship, but not authentic friendship. Money can buy you entertainment, but not happiness. Money can buy you food, but not an appetite. Money can buy you a bed, but not a good night's rest. Money can buy you a crucifix, but it won't buy you a savior. Money can buy you, quote, the good life, but it won't give you eternal life or an abundant life. And so you tell me, let me ask you the question, what is of more value, the things money can buy or the things money cannot buy? We all know the answer to that question, don't we, when we hear it that way. And so this is the Apostle Paul reminding us that God cares about us, whether we're rich or poor, that if we have godliness with contentment, it's great gain. So until we realize this truth, we can never be effective stewards. If we sit around all the time whining or fussing or cussing or complaining, then we're not content. Yeah. If you worry about being someplace you wish you were or some item you wish you owned or some status you wish you had realized, then you're not content. Verse 7 of our text today says it simply like this, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Yeah. Everything we have from birth to death is actually just on loan to us from God. You came in with nothing, you leave with nothing. Beth and I like to watch a particular program. I think it's on the Fox Business Channel, and it's a, it's a program called Strange Inheritance. I don't know if you've seen this or not. The premise of the show is families uh, call in and say to this uh, company, um, we have received an inheritance from, from our recently departed ancestor, family member, and it's a little different. It's a little unique. And so this program goes and tells the story, unpacks the narrative of this family who's inherited a certain thing, strange inheritance. And so it's everything from a very expensive painting to a coin collection or a, you know, a barn full of, of antique tractors that grandpa you know, saved over the, over the years, and now we've inherited it. At the end of the program, it's fascinating to listen to these stories and to see how families manage what they've inherited. At the end of the program, the hostess will stand there. She's, she's very attractive. She puts a big smile on her face, and she looks right into the camera, and she says, after you've been through you know, half an hour of hearing this story and the, and the unusual emotion and legal and practical and relational challenges that this inheritance brings to this family. So you've, you've just been immersed in this story. And she looks in the camera at the very end of it and smiles and says, and remember, 
you can't take it with you. And it all just comes home. And you go, man, that is so true. (laughs) You can't take it with you. And here's the evidence of what people have left behind. Uh, The rich man died and the question was asked, how much did he leave behind? And the answer, all of it, everything. Listen, I've been in a number of funeral processions over the years. You know, I've conducted a lot of funerals and I've ridden in the funeral hearse many, many times, dozens and dozens of times over the years. And over the years, I've developed this little routine that I do. So if I'm sitting in the passenger seat of the funeral hearse and we're processing to the, to the gravesite, I always try to get someone coming in oncoming traffic opposite, someone to wave to me. So I'm in the hearse and I always just, I pick out someone, I make eye contact and I go, just like that. Just try to get them to wave back. I've never gotten anyone to wave back. I'm not sure what the dynamic is there. And my point is simply this. I've never seen a funeral procession that contained a U-Haul. Not once. One guy wanted to be buried in his four-wheel drive pickup truck. His friend says, why do you want to be buried in your four-wheel drive? And he said, because I ain't never been in a hole it couldn't get me out of. Yeah, you get the point. You came in with nothing, you leave with nothing. A businessman was granted a wish from an angel. Show me a newspaper with the price of stocks one year from today. The angel says, so be it. The man was thrilled. And the angel delivered him this newspaper from a year from now. And he was able to study the stocks to see which ones were high and low compared to today. And how many of you know that would be a great advantage if you're invested in the stock market to know what they're going to be in a year from now? Yeah, so that would, that would set you up. But to his amazement and his shock and his fear, when he turned the page of the newspaper over, there he saw his own picture in the obituaries. Now, that's some perspective, isn't it? That's perspective, helpful perspective. A rich man wanted to take it with him. So he gave a million dollars in cash in a large envelope, each to a priest, a rabbi, and a Methodist pastor. The priest took $1,000 out of the envelope, put the rest in the casket. The rabbi took $10,000 out of the envelope, put the rest in the casket. The pastor deposited the $1 million and left a check in the casket. Can I get a big amen for that one right there? That's that's the right answer. (laughs) The point is made, though. You can't take it with you. You came here with nothing. You'll leave here with nothing. So praise God for anything that comes into your possession along the way. This is the perspective of a steward. Let me talk more about funerals. You won't be buried. Most... uh, Most people, in in fact, let me just say, no one in this room likely is going to be buried in some kind of simple pine box. That won't happen to you. Chances are you'll be buried in some kind of bronze, you know, fancy polished up metal casket. You'll be all dressed up. Professionals will be paid uh, to put makeup on you. Uh, Some of you in this room will actually look better when you're dead than you have at any point during your life. I'm enjoying that a lot more than folks this weekend, but that's just a fun one for me. If you don't think that's funny, then it's probably going to be true of you. Yeah. (laughs) Limousines will carry you to your final resting place. Traffic will be stopped. You know how it goes. 
Traffic signals will be ignored as the police lead your motorcade. Headlights will be emblazoned in the middle of the day. People will pull over to the side of the road and literally come to a full stop. Why? Why are they doing that? Because you are passing by. You are coming through. It's amazing. When you arrive at the gravesite, common ropes will not be used to lower you down into your grave. Indeed, a nickel-plated machine will lower you respectfully and gradually to your final resting place. All of that is going to happen. And guess what? Dead is still dead. You'll be dead as dead can be. And it doesn't matter how much veneer, how much polish, how much paint we put over the reality of, the, of death, dead is still dead. And so from birth to death, we're all just living. You've seen the headstone, the tombstone. Maybe you've already had yours chiseled out with your birth date on it and the dash Im, Im, embedded, but your death date waiting to be determined, right? And, and we've all seen this. The birth date, the death date, and the dash in between. Well, let me just remind you something. We're all living in that dash, and it's going just like that. Someday when it warms up, go out to the cemetery and just look at the hundreds and the thousands of people who've already lived their life. They lived it in the dash. They were here one moment, and they were gone the next. That's true for all of us. Life is short, and we need the right perspective. Here's a prayer of a man who's not rich. Proverbs 30, listen to this. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Who needs God? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That's a person with perspective. God will never bless you so much that you don't need him anymore. Amen. Hebrews 13, here's another prayer of a man with the right perspective. Keep your lives free from the love of money. and Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? It's a good prayer, isn't it? Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. So we have the perspective that the apostle offers us of a person who's not rich. Now let's uh, move to the next perspective in this uh, sequence of teaching. And it's on your ally, number two, the perspective of those who want to get rich. Want to get rich. Here's verse nine. I'll put this on the screen for us. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. So now the issue isn't having money. The issue is the passion to have more money. Here, here, here's where the yellow caution light comes on for us if we're tempted this way uh, to, to, to alert us to the dangers inherent in having as a goal in life, as a primary motive in life to pile it up, just to get rich. Now, this isn't pertaining to people who want to do better or people who want to advance or people who want to be promoted and work to that end or to reach their potential. All of those are good and godly things. But this is speaking primarily to those whose objective in life is to get rich. I don't care if I climb the ladder. The whole idea is that my salary go up. That's the wrong perspective. And so God says, beware. 
Beware if you slip into this category. Now, there are three things that we learn from our text that we should be aware of. The first is this. You might want to write this down. The love of money is deceptive. The love of money is deceptive. Now, by the way, there's six fill-in-the-blanks here in the next 10 or 15 minutes. All of the the fill-in-the-blank words begin with the letter D. Heads up makes it easier to fill in the blank. Plus, I like bragging on the fact that I came up with six points that all start with the same letter. You think, that you think it's easy. You just, when you hear it, you'll just go, well, yeah, well, that's easy. Listen, you try it this week. Come up with a sermon with six points, fill in the blank, all of them starting with the letter B, as in boy. Good luck with that. <laughs> so the love of money is deceptive. It's a temptation that tricks you. It's a trap. You know, the bear trap is hidden to the bear. The, the bird trap hidden from the bird. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, The passion to get money is like the drinking of seawater. When you taste its saltiness, all you want is more. So it pulls you in, it entraps you. John D. Rockefeller, arguably the most wealthy American who's ever lived, was asked, How much money is enough? He had a wry smile come over his face and he replied, Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. You say, Well, I don't love money. Okay, well, let's use another word. You think about it all the time. Now, let me just remind you, having money is not evil. Money is actually a neutral, morally neutral means of exchange. That's all it is. Having little or much is relevant only to the extent of the motive behind the way you accumulate it and the way you spend it. So money is not good or bad in and of itself. It's just a means that we use to exchange goods and services. It's the motive, it's the heart, it's the attitude behind it that can create negative results. This is why the love of money becomes evil. All kinds of evil is produced out of the love of money. That's what the Bible warns us about. So the love of money is deceptive. Here's the second thing. The love of money is destructive. Proverbs 28, a faithful man will be richly blessed but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. Eager to enrich himself apparently goes, goes under the judgment of God, will not go unpunished. And the stingy man is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. And we know what stingy leads to, leads to poverty, tends towards poverty. It's interesting, isn't it? In other words, God will judge those who pursue money. When money becomes an idol, God will judge. Now, the Bible's full of illustrations about this. For example, there was a man in his family. His name was Achan. This was uh, in the Old Testament time uh, under Moses, and they conquered a city, Joshua. They conquered a city, and God strictly forbade them from plundering the, the, the resources of that particular city. Achan, overcome by his own greed and his desire for more material possession, succumbed to that temptation and plundered with his family, plundered that city. And when it was discovered, Achan and his family were put to death. The judgment of God came on them from that. You'll remember that Judas, Judas Iscariot, was judged because he sold Jesus for money. Not good. Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in front of the apostles. This is in Acts chapter 5 because of their greed and the love of money. Simon the magician kept following, following Peter around in the, in the city of Ephesus, 
and, and, and this guy was a real annoyance. And Peter finally spun around and said to Simon, you and your money will perish with you. Wow. James chapter one says that God will judge those wealthy persons who live for more money. So when gold becomes God in your life, judgment follows. Very serious. So the love of money is destructive. Third part in this particular point, the love of money is dangerous. It's dangerous. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, here's a simple test. How do you spend the bulk of your time, your energy, your thinking, your planning? Do you spend it thinking about God and kingdom initiatives, or do you think you spend it thinking about gold and how to accumulate more of it? Do you think more about earning and spending money or more about the kingdom and the kingdom impact for Jesus Christ? The fly landed on the flypaper. The fly said, ah, my flypaper. And the flypaper responded back, ah, my fly. It's all about perspective, isn't it? It's too often the perspective of people in our world, they will give their lives to get money. In today's culture, it often plays out like this. We see this every day. We see it all day, every day. They give their health to get wealth, and then they give their wealth to get back their health, oftentimes too late. Yeah. So that's the perspective that the apostle gives to Timothy and to the rest of us regarding people who want money, long for more money. Here's the third category we'll be done. This is the perspective of those who are rich. We've heard the perspective of those who aren't rich, those who only want to be rich. And now how about those who are rich? Verse 17, command those who are rich. Now, in biblical terms, the word rich simply means a person who has an abundance of excess, means that you have enough to meet your needs and your family, and then some. You have more than you need for your basic necessities. The Bible describes that person as rich. Rich in this present world, note the timeline, in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So in biblical days, the rich would be defined as a person who has discretionary funds. You have extra at the end of the month. In biblical terms, any of us who are not merely living from day to day would be considered rich. And so most of us are, perhaps all of us in this room today are considered, from a biblical perspective, rich. We have a little bit more. I mean, most of us have next week's food already in the refrigerator. Most of us have a little bit of savings. Most of us have some investment portfolio, a retirement plan. And so therefore we are rich. We have tomorrow's needs met as well as today's. So we come into the category of a person who's rich. Now, the scripture's clear about folks who are biblically rich, like us. First one, write this down, there's a danger to avoid. There's a danger to avoid. And I know that many of you are persons of significant means. I, I'm proud to know people of significant financial blessing. I'm talking to a number of them this weekend in the life of our church. This, there's nothing negative. There's no guilt. There's, there's no... There's no pushback whatsoever, none. If you have wealth through legitimate means, God has surely blessed you and, and surely uh, you have ordered your life in such a way to accumulate the wealth you have. 
Back to Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey and one of his associates has done a research project in the last handful of years, which is the first one in American history. They've written a book called The Everyday Millionaire. Some of you have read this book. Let me just summarize for you what they have discovered after talking to about 10,000 people in the United States who are millionaires. In other words, they have a, a net worth of over a million dollars. After all their liabilities, all of their debts compared to their assets, uh, they have a net worth of more than a million dollars. And apparently there are tens of thousands of people like this in the United States, millionaires all around us. Thus the title of the book, The Everyday Millionaire. We will not know this and have no way of finding out th this statistic, but my hunch is that if, if we found out how many millionaires there are just in our congregation, we would be pleasantly surprised or maybe shocked by it. There are millionaires all around us. There are lots of millionaires in this room right now. And you say, well, how is that? And the, the assumption is made because of the warped psychology of American materialism, the assumption is made that people who are worth a, a million dollars uh, have either inherited that money from their ancestors or they have acquired it by some ill-gotten gain. They've hurt somebody, they've done something immoral, they've done something illegal in order to attain that much net worth. And nothing could be further from the truth. That's just deception, it's just a lie. What we are discovering and have discovered about your everyday millionaire, the average person in the culture who is a millionaire has a net worth of more than a million dollars, is that these are people who have over a long period of time, gotten on a budget, got out of debt, saved and invested, managed their business, did it under biblical principles, and God blessed them, and their wealth grew. Shazam. The point I'm trying to make very simply is it's not, it's not that guy or gal who has some, some yuckety-yuck position that has a huge income that acquire a million dollars. It's everyday folks. And so what Dave Ramsey discovered is that there are guys who've walked, worked in, uh, in the postal service, men and women who have taught school for the last 40 years, men and women who have gone to work every day and accumulated and have disciplined and, 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 and engaged behaviors in their life that tended toward prosperity. And they built wealth over time. So by the, by the end of their life, Ramsey's phrase, uh, so that you can live like no one else and give like no one else. And as it turns out, applying biblical principles to your life and your money management, it works. It tends toward prosperity. Shouldn't surprise anyone. So let's not be negative or critical toward people who have behaved in, in this way. We should honor them and recognize uh, the benefits of, the, of their di diligence and determination. That's a great thing. Having said that now, those of us who have accumulated a significant amount of asset over the course of our lives, there's a fair warning here. And here's the warning, a danger to avoid. Do not be arrogant and don't be conceited. Because God has blessed you at this level of accumulation is no good reason to get full of yourself. This is the danger. If you've worked hard, you've grown your business, you've got promoted, you invested, you stewarded carefully, thank God. But remember that your bank account, your standard of living, your large assets 
or your lack of those things have absolutely, positively, categorically, nothing whatsoever to do with your value as a person. If you have a lot of stuff, you have intrinsic value as a human being. If you have no stuff and you live hand to mouth and you're on the margins, you are intrinsically valuable as a human being. I promise you when we all get to heaven, no one's going to be judged or measured or categorized or, or sectioned off based on how much stuff they piled up or how little stuff they piled up while they were here. I promise you that will have no bearing whatsoever on the way things are managed in heaven. And so you can understand then why the danger. The danger is to think more of ourselves than we should, think of less of ourselves than we should, depending on how much material asset we've accumulated. That's not, that's not smart. That's, that's bad. And that'll lead to all kinds of negative things. So, so let me just remind you that God has many examples of faithfulness in the lives of rich folk in the Bible. So this isn't a bad thing. It's an honorable thing. It's, it represents the blessing of God. And as long as your attitude and your heart is right toward that blessing, then you're good to go. For example, Job was rich. Abraham was rich. Joseph was rich. David was rich. Solomon was rich. You could argue he's the richest dude that's ever walked on the planet. A woman named Lydia in the New Testament was rich. Another woman who was a business owner, her name was Dorcas. She was rich in the New Testament. And all of these people honored God. Frankly, those most rich should be the most humble because they're the ones who've been the most blessed. Deuteronomy 8 says, it is the Lord that gives you the power to get wealth. Proverbs 11 says, he who trusts in riches will fall. Proverbs 23, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Luke chapter 12, the rich man boasted in his riches and then it was described to him, you fool, today your soul will be required of you. So there's a danger to avoid. A second thing, if you are rich, is there is a duty to perform. A duty to perform. Verse 18, command or instruct them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Now the word share there is actually from the Greek koinonia, which rings a bell for some of us. It means community, it means association, it means fellowship, it, it means caring. It means caring. So this isn't an admonition for some cold de detached, oh, I'll write a check for that here. It's actually investing yourself at an emotional level, a caring level for the people that you're trying to help. So if you, ha you have extra and you can bless another human being who has need, uh, allow yourself to genuinely care for the people that you're helping. That's the duty to perform. And then finally, number three, there's a destiny to consider. A destiny to consider. Verse 19, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, that which is life indeed. Let me just say, this is a powerful, powerful verse. In your life, you share your wealth with God and with people. You don't get inflated. Your attitude is one of humility. You perform good with the resources you have. And the result is life, life indeed. See, in this life and the one to come, you'll enjoy true life, quality life, abundant life. 
Now, friends, one of these days, one of these days, uh, we're going to hold your funeral. Maybe it's, it'll be in this room. Maybe we'll lay you out right here in the front. You'll be, you'll be in your fancy box, and you'll be dead as a mackerel. You'll look good. But you're dead. And people will say nice things about you. Someone will stand up. Maybe it'll be me. And I'll eulogize you and just say great things about you and find good news about your life. Before it's over, you'll be as saintly as Mother Teresa. It'll be beautiful. But then the service will come to an end and uh, folks will, will dismiss themselves. They'll walk out. And we'll get ready for that procession, you know, where traffic gets stopped and all that. And then there'll just be, there'll just be you in the box and a few attendants. And one of the attendants will come over and then they're going to close the lid on your box. And that'll be the end of you. Yeah. And when they close the lid on your box that day, listen to me. It won't matter what you left behind. It'll only matter what you forwarded ahead. Because when they close the box, the question is, will you be ready? Will you have had the right perspective on the resources that God has placed in your disposal during your lifetime? Because now that your life is over, it doesn't matter anymore because you can't take it with you. So the only question is, have you sent ahead? Have you invested your life and the resources that God has placed at your disposal in things that matter for an eternity? And so have you, have, you, have you given ahead? Have you invested forward in eternal things, realizing the right perspective? The game doesn't last forever. You came in with nothing, you leave with nothing. With food and clothing, you were content. You used your riches to glorify God. The question then at that moment will be, when you stand before Jesus, will he be able to say to you, well done. Well done, good, faithful servant. Well done, faithful steward. Well done. Good job. That's the question for all of us, isn't it? May God give us the grace, the wisdom, the perspective and the courage to live our lives in such a way that keeps us humble before God, thankful to him for everything he's given us and generous in our lives, our relationships and our resources to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pause and pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you so much for this insight, for this clear direction, this helpful perspective and so, Lord, we pray that you would embolden us, inspire us, encourage us to live according to the perspective that you give us. And, Lord, help us to be found faithful. Help us to be found generous as good stewards of all that you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?